And that song is just so happens to be what our text is about this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Well, we will be learning some great things about God from the birth of John the Baptist. When you think back into history, there are a lot of incredible things that have happened by obscure people in obscure places. You think of people like Edison and his little shop trying a filament after filament after filament, trying to find which one would work best for the light bulb. You think of the Wright brothers working to create a machine that would fly the first airplane. Or maybe the Chinaman who first mixed chemicals together in order to make gunpowder. Well, you don't even know his name. And all of these people and many, many others have impacted the world in a huge way. Throughout history, obscure people and obscure places have really changed the, the course and destiny of the world through their inventions and through their writings. And as we shall see this morning, through their birth, we have learned that the theme of Luke is Jesus, the Son of Man. And that is the, the whole focus of everything that Luke is driving towards. Of course, Jesus is not yet born in our study. In the text before us, he's only anticipated. And yet everything is driving towards his birth, his incarnation, his life. His teachings, his death, his burial, his resurrection, because he is the son of man. And Luke starts off with the parents of John the Baptist, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And John was the one who was prophesied, who would come in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the the children to their fathers and to make a people prepared for the Lord. He was the one that Isaiah spoke of, a voice crying out in the wilderness. And yet, until this morning, we have yet to see John even born. The angel has appeared to Zacharias. He has appeared to him in the temple, has told him his wife of old age, who is barren, is going to get pregnant and have a child. And sure enough, that is what happened. The angel Gabriel also appeared to a young lady, a virgin in the town of Nazareth, whose name was Mary, told her that she was going to give birth to none other than the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Son of the Most High God. While yet a virgin. And Mary then runs to her cousin Elizabeth's house. And upon greeting Elizabeth, John the Baptist, who is still in Elizabeth's wombs, leaps for joy. The Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth and she begins to praise God. And she praises Mary. She praises the fruit of her womb. She praises God for sending Mary to her. She praises Mary because she has believed the word of God. And Mary, overcome with joy, begins to utter her own song of praise, a magnificat to God. And she recites how the Lord has blessed her and how the Lord will bless all the nations and all the people through the Messiah who she is now carrying in her womb. And then there is a brief mention of how Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months and then returned home. It seems for some reason she returned right before John the Baptist was born. The text doesn't say why, but she is not mentioned as having been there when John was born. Luke then leaves the topic of Mary's pregnancy and Mary's praises and goes back to John the Baptist. He is taking the the nativity of Christ and the nativity of John the Baptist and he is mixing them together. John the Baptist is significant because the scriptures prophesy that the Messiah would not come until the forerunner came. John was like a pace car. And he, he had to go before the others to pave way for the Messiah. 
And Jesus can't come until John comes, so John must come. And this is his arrival. If you look at verse 57 of Luke chapter 1, follow along as I read. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy towards her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak in praise of God and fear came on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then would this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. From this text, you will learn five principles, practical principles about God from the birth of and blessing of John the Baptist. The first is this found in verse 57, that God's blessing should teach you to trust in his promises. Verse 57 says, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she gave birth to a son. Now, from what we have learned in the preceding context, we know that John's birth was prophesied. That's obvious. Elizabeth was pregnant in her old age. But we learned something here about God that we have learned before and we will learn many times more because God thinks it is so important. And it is this. You can trust in the promises of God. Did God say before Elizabeth was pregnant that she was going to be pregnant? Of course. Did God say she would give birth to a son before she was pregnant? Before ultrasound? Of course. God not only predicted these things, he caused them to happen. God wasn't just looking into the future because he was God looking at millions and trillions of random events and saying, whoa, Elizabeth's going to get pregnant in her old age. And amazing. She's going to give birth to a son and they're going to call him John. So I think I'll send an angel down there and tell him beforehand. No, that's to try and mix The false theory of evolution with the sovereignty of God. There are no random events. There are no events that happen by chance, but God decrees them all. The die is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God decrees the end from the beginning, and he decreed that Elizabeth and her barrenness and her old age would have a son. And that is exactly what happened. And you are not going to give birth to John the Baptist. I know that. You are not Elizabeth. You are not Zacharias living in that time and that place. But you are a Christian today who is to live by the word of God and the truth of the word of God. And you need to remember, as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 48, that the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God abides forever. Later, Isaiah said this in Isaiah 46, 10 through 11. God describes himself in these words as declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. I will do it. Now, he doesn't say looking into the future and finding out what men are doing so I can tell you what happens beforehand. He says, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I will do it. God is the one who does it. He is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who is control. Later on, God says this 
In Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. When God makes a promise, it never fails. It never, ever fails. And if ever did, ever did, even the smallest promise ever failed, God would not be God. Because he is perfect, because he is holy, because he is all powerful and all just and all sovereign. Every single thing he says always comes true just like he says it. And that is why Jesus in John 10, 35, when refuting the Jewish leaders said, the scriptures cannot be broken. They cannot be broken. And when you look at the word of God and you think of all the wonderful promises the word of God has put there for you, doesn't that make you marvel? I mean, think of all the promises, promises of salvation, promises of blessing, Promises of hope, promises of being saved from the wrath of God, promises of receiving wisdom from God, enduring trials, of receiving strength from God when weak, and the list goes on and on. And all of those promises always come true. They have to come true. They never don't come true. They will all happen just the way God said they would in your life today, just like they happened in the life of Zacharias and Elizabeth. You draw near to God today, he will draw near to you. You repent and believe the gospel, you will be saved. You pray in everything with thanksgiving And your request, if they are made known to God, God will give you his peace. He has to do it. And every one of the other multitude of promises, they're all true. They're all perfect. And then none of them ever fail. And you need to remember that. And that's what we learn from this text. If you were in a burning building, you were trapped in some upper floor and the firemen were all down below telling you in the loudspeaker not to worry. The ladder truck is coming and you could hear the sirens coming. And maybe from your vantage point, you could even see that truck coming. Yet it wasn't there. You would know that hope was there. Salvation was coming. You were going to be rescued. Well, I am telling you, flames and fire are coming. And if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The sirens of scripture tell us this and they are never wrong. They never fail. And so have hope, be of good cheer, because nothing will stop God from accomplishing his word. Listen, beloved, God's word is the most sure thing in the universe. You know, there are things that are really sure that we know about scientific laws, like the law of gravity. But you know what? God reversed the law of gravity and made an axe head float for the prophet. And Jesus walked on water and Peter got a couple steps in too. That is a sure thing. A scientific law has never been proven wrong. But you know what? God has overturned scientific law. We have other things that seem absolutely certain, like the motion of the planets and the stars. And yet when we look in the scriptures, God stops the earth from rotating. So Israel can win a battle. We see him actually reverse the rotation of the earth. So that Hezekiah can have comfort. Scientific laws are consistent. The rotation of the planets are consistent, but they aren't as consistent as the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And your task is clear. You need to read the word. You need to study the word. You need to have God's promises before you. Why? How can you live as a Christian without God's promises? That is your hope. It's not in this world. It's not in your job. It's not in your health. It's in the promises of God. 
And they never fail. You just need to cling to them. You need to believe them like Zacharias and Elizabeth did. And they will be fulfilled just like in Zacharias and Elizabeth's life. The second thing we learn from our text is found in verse 58. Look there. Your blessing should bring glory to God and joy to others. Verse 58 reads, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her and they were rejoicing with her. Though Elizabeth was in seclusion for five months, she did come out the sixth month. And during that sixth month, she and Mary probably went to the synagogue and people saw she was pregnant. And they went to the marketplace and they saw she was pregnant. She was on her front porch sweeping and they saw she was pregnant. She was old. Look at that old woman. She's pregnant. And they all marveled at it. And they all knew it was a miracle. In our culture, it would be a freak of nature. A chance. An evolutionary malfunction. But in that culture, a culture that was steeped in the scriptures, who believed that God was the cause of all things, who thought beforehand that Elizabeth was cursed of God because she couldn't have children. Now they look at her and they know something. God is blessing that older woman and God has caused that to happen. And she is not cursed. She is blessed. And what Luke says about the neighbors and relatives is they heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy, his mega mercy towards her. And they rejoiced. They magnified. They highly esteemed the Lord because of God's mercy and grace poured out in her life. They were rejoicing with her. And just as Elizabeth's blessing And Zechariah's blessing brought praise and rejoicing to God. You need to let your blessings do the same. Sometimes God's blessings are so evident in your life, like Elizabeth's pregnancy, that people around you will see it and they will rejoice with you. I mean, there's some things you just can't hide. You know, something big happens and everybody knows about it. At least most people around you know And they're able to praise God, but usually they don't know. Or only a few people who know you know. Maybe you received a promotion at work, or maybe you were blessed by being cured of something, or maybe, you know, you were accepted to your favorite college, or you graduated from college, or, you know, a number of things. Maybe you were just reading your Bible this week, and God blessed you, and you just found some great passage that you've just been just marinating in all week. And you just love it. And it was convicting, but it's good. And it's really helped you. These are all blessings. These are all blessings that you have. And you need to share them with other. You need to make sure other people know about them. You know, when someone is blessed with earthly treasures, the world loves to know about it. It's in the paper. It's in the newspaper ads. You know, this person won the lotto or whatever. And everybody says, oh, how wonderful. What about you? When someone comes to know the Lord, when someone is blessed spiritually, when someone is encouraged in their walk, does that bring you rejoicing? It does to me. I mean, I love to hear the testimonies at baptism time. I love those. I love those. They're great. They're just wonderful. And when God blesses you, even if it's small, you need to say to somebody, you know, around the donut table, hey, Have a donut. Those are blessings from God. And then there's a woman who's on the other side of the table saying, no, those are curses. (laughs) But you need to say, hey, guess what the Lord taught me this week? Guess what the Lord did for me this week? Hey, guess what God did for me in my job? We need to we need to realize God is sovereign. God is working all things after the counsel of his will. And we need to take time to pull people aside and tell them about those things. Because what happens when somebody says, guess what God did for me? You hear that and you go, oh, great. Praise God. That's exactly what he wants.
That's exactly what he wants. When God blesses you, when he encourages you, when he provides for you physically and spiritually, you need to let other people know. You know, sometimes I'm in my office and I'm studying and I find some little gem that's so wonderful that I can't wait till Sunday morning. So I just kind of slip out of my office and go, Ruth, look what I found. Or Don, or, or listen to this, listen to this quote. Why? Because I want them to be blessed. I want them to rejoice too. I mean, what would you think? What would you think if I had the cure for cancer and I didn't tell anybody? Or all of a sudden you read in the LA Times on the front page, man finds cure for cancer but hides it from the world for 60 years. And you'd want to wring that guy's neck. Well, that's kind of how God feels when he blesses you and 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 you you just kind of keep it hidden. He wants you to let other people know. He wants you to give him credit so that you can rejoice and so that they can rejoice. That's what we learn from verse 58. The third thing we learn from the text is found in verses 59 through 63, that your blessing should motivate you to obey God. And it happened, the text says in verse 59, that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, no, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. Now, the standard custom was to circumcise a child on the eighth day, according to Genesis seventeen twelve and Leviticus twelve three. But Luke seems to indicate that it was also on the eighth day, at least in his day and time, the time of John the Baptist's birth, that they even named the, the child on the eighth day. And it was the custom, as it is often today, to name the firstborn son after the father. Zach Sr., Zach Jr. And those who were there attending the circumcision asked Mary what the child was to be named. And assuming the name would be Zacharias. Remember, Zacharias was unable to speak. Mary gave them a strange answer. She says, no, indeed. And she uses the emphatic here. Absolutely not. We are not going to name him Zacharias. We're going to name him John. John, we don't know any Johns. There are no other Johns in your family. And then they're thinking, you know, when Zacharias gets his hearing and his speech back, he's not going to like this. We better ask him. So they did the, told them what to do. And what is interesting is verse 62 says, and they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him to be called. This lets us know that when the angel said, you will be unable to speak, that he also lost his hearing. He couldn't. He was able to speak because he he was really unable to communicate because he couldn't hear or speak. And Zacharias, when he is asked this, writes on this tablet, his name is John. He doesn't say, say his name is going to be John or will be John, but he uses the present active. His name continues to be John. That's his name. And ever since his conception, Elizabeth and Zacharias had called him John as the angel instructed. And what is great about this text is that it shows us that Zacharias and Elizabeth were committed to obeying the Lord. Zacharias started out bad, didn't he? I mean, he didn't believe the angel. But now he is believing everything the angel said, and he is obeying everything the angel said to obey. Even though they had to go against custom... 
Even though they had to go against the peer pressure of their relatives and their neighbors, they did it anyways because God's blessing in their life so humbled them and so motivated them that they just wanted to please the Lord in every way they could. And this should be in your true in your life as well. We see this truth taught all the way in the scriptures, especially in the area of salvation. When God saves someone, when he transforms them into a new creature, what does God expect? Service, obedience, worship, good deeds, trust, faithfulness, confession of sin. We are to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Our salvation should give glory to God in how we live Some of you go to work day after day and week after week and every once in a while you get a paycheck and that paycheck motivates you to work another week. But God does it a little differently. You don't work for God. You work for God's enemy. And when you are rebelling against him, when you are acting like his enemy, he hires you. And gives you a paycheck for all eternity. He gives you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He gives you physical blessings. He gives you things which I has not seen or ear heard or entered in the heart of man. He builds you a nice place in heaven, a mansion. He blesses you for all eternity and then says, hey, why don't you come work for me and be my servant? I mean, what would happen? Put it in this perspective. What if a a billionaire, a multi-billionaire were to come to you and say, hey, uh, I've had a a private investigator uh, researching your life and uh, I have discovered uh, the things that you like to do most. I notice you've enjoyed shopping. Um, I notice you enjoy uh, woodworking and golf. And uh, I would like to give you a billion dollars if you wouldn't mind coming to work for me until you retired. What would you say? Okay, I could do that. As a matter of fact, I would be glad to do that. Everything I want to do. Sure. Pay up front. Sure. That'd be pretty great. That's exactly what God does. When you are fighting against him, he saves you. Pays you for all eternity. And our right expression should not be, eh, thanks for the blessings, but I'm not going to give you glory. And there's only one way to glorify God, and that's by obeying him. Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But there's always a danger in blessing. Blessings are good, and we ask for blessings all the time, and God wants us to ask for blessings. But a lot of times when we... Get them. We use them for self-indulgence and for sinning, for rebelling against God. And this is not good. This happened uh, all the way through the Old Testament, even though God had warned Israel about it in Deuteronomy. For instance, in Deuteronomy 4, the Lord reminds Israel of some of the great blessings he has given them. And he says things like, what nation has a law as great as the law that you have? And the implied answer is none. And what what nation has a God who is as great as the God that you have? And the implied answer is none. And then he says this in Deuteronomy 4, 9, give heed to yourself. And keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen. What is, what is he talking about? What did they see? They saw God deliver the whole nation through the plagues and take them through the Red Sea and protect them at Mount Sinai and feed them with manna every single day and keep their clothes so they wouldn't wear out and shield them with a, a, a cloud by day and give them a street light, a pillar of fire by night. Every single day, God blessed them and blessed them and blessed them and blessed them for 40 years in the wilderness, doing miracle after miracle. And when this was written, they were living off the miracles of God. And he says, be careful. You don't forget God's blessings. In Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, the Lord warns the people against This same thing again, saying, then it shall come about 
When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn sisters which you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Satan will tempt you to take all the blessings of God and use them against God. Satan loves it when Christians profess to know God, but with their deeds, they deny him. When they live off of the very blessing of God and the resources of God and then use God's resources to sin against him. You know, God gave you your brain God gives you your job and your education and maybe you're able to make a lot of money and you forget who gave you your brain and your job and the ability to make wealth and your education and your life and your opportunities and you rejoice in your own self-sufficiency. You're like Nebuchadnezzar who stood on the top of his palace and said, is this not Babylon the great? which I have built by my own power and outstretched arm? And the answer was, no, you didn't. I did that through the resources I gave you. So animal time for you. (laughs) And how sinful would have it been for Zacharias and Elizabeth to forget the Lord's commandment? Could you imagine after God did all of this? And there they are, and all their relatives are there. They cave into a little peer pressure and say, okay, okay, we'll disobey God. We'll forget all of his blessings towards us. We'll call him Zach Jr. No, God wants you to use your blessings as a motivation to obey him. The fourth thing we learn from the text is in verse 64. Look there. Your discipline from the Lord should cause you to praise God. Verse 64 says, and at once his mouth was opened, his tongue was loose and began to speak in praise of God. Imagine what it must have been like for Zacharias. I mean, think about this. Here you are, you're serving, you get this incredible opportunity to serve God in the temple. This angel shows up, tells you you're going to have a son through your old wife, And that he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And you don't believe it. Even though God sent an angel, you don't believe it. And so God strikes you with a nine month quiet time. (laughs) And if you think about this, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times we don't realize that we, we, we are never in places that are really quiet. It's hard to find a really quiet place. You know, last night I was sleeping and I heard the rain dripping on some piece of plastic outside my window. So I had to close the windows. And even if you go into a, a room and close the door, you hear the hum of lights and cars faintly through the doors. And you can hear sounds and noises and little creaks. You know, if you really want to get into a place that's really quiet, you have to go like into a cave or something. You've ever... One time we drove our motorcycles in a mine shaft. It was pretty dumb, I think. But we drove them, drove them in there and uh, got way back into the mine shaft. And it was really loud. And then we turned off our motorcycles and it was really quiet. Very quiet. Just, just perfectly quiet. And that's what happened to Zacharias. God shut down his hearing and shut down his mouth. And you know what he was saying all those nine months. Oh, how he's so stupid. How can I, how can I do that? I'm like, oh, I mean, I was in the temple and it was an angel and I should have believed. And he probably repented a thousand times as he went outside and heard nothing. He couldn't hear his wife sweeping, couldn't hear any clink of the dishes, which was probably a blessing. (laughs) And he experienced all that grief and all that regret for not believing the angel. But you know what? He was thinking about it. He learned his lesson through the discipline of the Lord. And he got some resolve up and he realized, listen, 
I blew it and I know I blew it. But the angel said, when John's born, I'm going to be able to speak. And I know what I'm going to do as soon as I can speak. As soon as I can speak, I know what I'm going to do. He had made up his mind. And yet imagine if you were Zacharias and here you are, you can't hear, you can't speak for nine months. You're waiting for the day and all of a sudden your wife goes into labor. You know it. She has the baby and you can't speak. And the next day 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 and the next day and you still can't speak. And in the morning of the eighth day, you still can't speak or hear. And you're thinking to yourself, Maybe God's madder at me than I thought. <laughs> and I thought he said, the angel said I was going to be able to speak again. But it seems that the angel's promise was tied directly to him naming his son, John, because as soon as he writes out on that pat tablet, as he's writing that out, all of a sudden he hears the scratch of the tablet. He can hear his wife speaking to the relatives. He can hear the birds. He can hear all that comes back. And he can hear. And he knows he can speak. And the first thing out of his mouth, he gives praise to God. He learned his lesson from the discipline. And that's what we need to learn too. When God disciplines you, it's always for your good. Painful? Yes. Builds regret? Yes. You wish you hadn't done it? Yes. But afterwards, as the author of Hebrews says, it builds or yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know, some of you have young ones who are sinners, just like their parents. They're strong-willed. They're constantly in rebellion. And you know, sometimes moms are at home all day, correcting and instructing and reproving and rebuking and exhorting and disciplining. And they just feel like, oh, I wish I could just stop. This is not fun. Don't touch that. Come over here. Make your bed. Pick that up. Eat your peas. Don't stop. Don't speak that way to your sister. Cut it out. Use a napkin. Never ends. And from the child's point of view, it sounds like mwah, 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 mwah. <laughs> and, and you're just, you're tired and they're tired of it. They don't like it. You don't like it. But afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, doesn't it? It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And it's no different in your life. I mean, Christ is the vine and you are the branches. Do you want to bear much fruit? Sure you do. And God wants you to bear much fruit. So he gets out the loppers. Those hurt. Loppers hurt. He gets out the loppers of trials and the knife of sickness and the chisel of relationship difficulties and the, the file of broken cars and the axe of building inspectors. At least that's how it is in my life. And God always disciplines you, though, for your good and for his glory. So you can't just learn the lesson. You must learn the lesson and then use the lesson for who? The glory of God. The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And you have forgotten the or have you forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. And how does he scourge you? Through the broken car, through relationship difficulties, through sickness and pain and trial. That's his scourge. Do not faint. Why? Because God is showing love towards you and you're thinking, how could that be? Well, it's the same way. Your child, after you work with them and work with them and work with them and work with them, and they grow up, they praise you because you help them to be honest and respectful and kind and gentle and Christ-like because you labored to make them into men and women of character. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy. And that all there is really a problem. 
All joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is supernatural, isn't it? Something comes down on your life and man, you're just praising God. Say, so, well, I, your house just burnt down. I know, I get to build a new one. <laughs> Somebody just ran into your car and tore up the bumper. I know. I didn't need that bumper anyways. I never used it before today. James goes on to say, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Peter in first Peter four, 12 through 14 says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What a great passage. You know, when all these things come upon, don't ask yourself, why is this happening to me? Say, oh, I was expecting this. God promised this. He's showing love towards me right now. He's given me an opportunity to obey him, to trust him, to not be anxious, to not fret, to apply his word, to trust in his promises, to have hope in him and only in him. The discipline of the Lord is felt in trials and these fiery ordeals, and they must be used to motivate you to praise him, not grumble against him. Zacharias was disciplined for his unbelief and sure it was painful all those nine months. Sure. He had lots of regrets. Sure. He missed out on a lot of great conversations and never got to hear Mary say her Magnificat. But Hey, he knew what he was going to do after he learned his lesson. He praised God. And that's what you need to do too. I mean, in the midst of your pain, you may have a hard time praising God. When you look back, you better praise him. Because he used that for your good. So what is the consequence of all this that we've learned this morning? You know, you've learned to trust God and his promises. You are using your blessings to glorify God and be a blessing to others. You are using your blessings to motivate you to obey. And you are using your discipline from the Lord as an opportunity to rejoice and thank him. Then what happens? What happens? Well, verse 65 and 66 tell us, look there, your life becomes a witness to others that God's hand is upon you. Verse 65 says, fear came on all those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept in kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Someone once said the greatest hindrance to Christianity is professing Christians who don't walk with the Lord. That same person said, and the greatest asset to Christianity is professing Christians who do walk with the Lord. What's true of your life? You talk to people who have had some exposure to Christianity who don't want anything to do with religion. And what do they often say? Well, you know, I grew up in a Christian family and my mom and dad lived like this at church and this at home. Oh, yeah. You know, I've read in the paper that pastor so-and-so, you know, preached this, but he did that. You know, my mom and dad drug me to church, but they never went professing to know him, but with their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And this is why Satan loves it. When the church rapidly accepts anyone's profession of faith, never questions their salvation and quickly points out all their faults. Satan loves press like that. He loves it. 
He wants everybody to know, put it on the billboard. Oh, so-and-so is just flamed out that they're a Christian. That there's Christianity for you. There's the power of God. Oh, go be an atheist. It's all superstition. And we have heard so many testimonies from this baptism right above us, a baptismal where people told about how they thought they were Christians, how they thought they knew Jesus Christ, how they even professed to know him. But with their deeds, they deny him. Oh, sure, they came to church and maybe they even served. But in their hearts, they didn't love God. They didn't love his truth and they didn't love his people. They loved praise. They love the approval of men. They love their sin more than God. And for some reason, because of maybe being thought of as a hypocrite, they just wouldn't humble themselves and repent and receive Jesus Christ, though they professed him and maybe knew quite a few Bible verses. And if that is you, you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You need to quit playing the game. Judgment's coming. And on the other hand, there are those of you who are trusting in God's word. You're using your blessings to give glory to God. You're letting your blessings blessings motivate you to obey God, using your discipline from the Lord as an opportunity to praise him. And you know what you are? You are a witness to the world. You are an enigma to the world. They see things happen to you at work and they just think, man, how could, how could he be so joyful? I mean, he just got demoted and he didn't even flinch. He's happy. He's singing religious tunes in the break room, eating his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. What is wrong with that guy? And pretty soon your witness, your light, which is shining before men, they see your good works. And when they're down and when they're out and when their life is miserable, they look at you and you seem to be bulletproof. Because you believe the promises of God. You know that with food and clothing, you are to be content. You know this world is not your home. You know you have a better place. And so because of your righteousness, because of your holiness, you are so different from them that they come to you and say, Hey, tell me, how come you're so different? And you share the gospel with them. And they too come to repentance and faith. That is what Christianity is about. It's about living your life in a way that brings glory to God. When God finally loosed Zacharias's tongue, he cried out in praise. And the text says that fear came on all those living around them. They just thought, whoa, they just had this deep reverence for God. And it says all these matters are being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All those that little group of witnesses just became like a flame that just spread around the whole hill country. And all the neighbors are going, do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? You know, remember Zacharias, he couldn't hear, he couldn't speak for a long time. Well, right after John was born and he wrote on a tablet, his name shall be John. He could speak and hear again. And he started praising God. I mean, this is obviously of the Lord. I wonder what this means. And many of them wouldn't know. But you know what? Some of those people would still be alive some 30 years later. Zacharias and Elizabeth would move down into the lowlands of the the wilderness away from the hill country and John would be raised in the wilderness and all of a sudden they would hear rumors. There's this guy down in the Jordan River telling people they need to repent and prepare themselves for the Lord. Who is it? This guy named John. They're calling him John the Baptist. Really? I knew his parents. I remember when he was born. I'm going to go listen to him preach. And I'm sure many of those people came to salvation. And all of this happened because God took an old man and an old woman and decided to use them. And I love what verse 66 says. And all who heard them kept in mind these sayings. Saying, what would this child turn out to be for the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And, you know, you look at this phrase, hand of the Lord, it appears 35 times in the Old Testament. It's used of God's extra blessing poured out on people. For instance, it's used of Elijah and Ezra and Ezekiel. I mean, high powered figures. And you can look at that and say, well, Jack, I'm no Ezra. I'm no Elijah and I am no Ezekiel and I'm no John the Baptist. But I want you to know God's hand is upon you. 
Do you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Sure you do. Our unimaginable riches and glory waiting for you for all eternity in heaven? Of course. Will you reign, rule and reign with Christ forever? Have you been given every spiritual blessing that you could ever imagine and everything in this life pertaining to life and godliness so you can give glory to God? Of course. That sounds like the good hand of the Lord to me. And so you need to walk in obedience to the Lord And you need to be a witness to the world of God's saving grace because, as the cliche goes, for most people, you are the only Jesus they will ever see. So I hope you leave here today trusting in the promises of God, not doubting them. I hope you leave here today using your blessings to bring glory to God and not to indulge yourself. I hope you leave here today letting your blessings motivate you to obey God. I hope you leave here today letting your discipline from the Lord cause you to praise him. And finally, I hope you do all these things so that your salvation and the blessing God has given you through salvation will be such a light to the world that they will see your good deeds and they will glorify your father who is in heaven. This is God's will for you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this text. At first glance, we just see a little historical episode that happened a long time ago in a place we've never been to some couples we never knew personally. And yet, Father, we see you here working. We see you blessing. We see you teaching. We see you instructing us by example, the things we need to do. Father, as we leave here today, help us to take all of our blessings and use them in the way that we have seen in this text. May our lives and all the resources you've given us to live our lives, make our lives shine so brightly in the dark world that they would be able to see you And your truth live through us. See our holiness, our separateness from them. So that they might first be curious. And then be compelled to ask. And then by your grace be granted repentance so that they might believe and be saved too. Father, help us to be this way as we leave here today and for the rest of our life. Here on earth until you come for us in glory or until we die and go to be with you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.